Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. By the time you hear this, Boris Johnson will have been to Buckingham Palace and the Queen will have made him her 14th Prime Minister, which is quite a thought. That's what he's doing today. We're going to talk about what is he going to do in the autumn. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We have our crack team with us, <laughs> Helen Thompson, Chris Pickerton, Catherine Bernard. So we have expertise in political economy, European politics, European law. Doesn't mean we know what's going to happen in the autumn either, but we're going to give it a go. Um, we left it last week with the geeky cliffhanger of the backstop. So let's start with the backstop, because when you look at the various decision trees and pathways laid out in the newspapers, there is a simplified version of it, which really does revolve around the backstop. Can you change it or can't you change it? If you can change it, there are paths that open up. If you can't change it, it's a pretty different set of options. I think we probably have been assuming that you can't change it. Is that right? I mean, is that anything about the backstop that is amenable to negotiation? It isn't quite a binary question because the question of like, can you change the deep substance of the, the backstop? And then there's a the question of, can you make some changes around the edges that make it more politically sellable, perhaps more politically sellable for the incoming prime minister than it was for the, the previous prime minister? Because if it's the case that Boris Johnson comes to the conclusion that there isn't really any way down the no deal path, then the only option becomes just doing just enough to get something that can be sold to enough people in the his side of the House of Commons, those people in the ERG who didn't vote for the withdrawal agreement on previous occasions to swallow it. I think what's not really realistic is something that's going to make it palatable to the DUP. Because for the DUP, you know, the backstop's existential. So what's the just enough? Well, I think that that's what nobody what knows. Even what even possibly the, the answer to is, 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 so the, is something I mean, the, about time limit... Mm. Or an exit clause. Or something that strengthens, perhaps, even though it might not be enough for the DUP, strengthens the role of the Stormont institutions if they could be resurrected in the, in the process. In those two sides of the backstop that make it unpalatable for many Conservatives, one, that it might trap, as they say, the UK in a customs union, the other, that it sets up separate rules for Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, from what Helen says, is the thought that the Northern Ireland bit is going to be the bit that's just going to have to be sacrificed in a way in order to rescue the UK from the other thing. Is is that going to be the trade-off? If the DUP won't swallow it, is the thought that Johnson might have to basically sacrifice Northern Ireland for the sake of getting a deal? Well, that's certainly possible. I think in terms of the options, it is odd that there is an Article 50 exit clause from the whole EU, but there is no exit clause from the backstop. Now, we understand why, because it's an insurance policy and you absolutely don't want to have an exit clause from an insurance policy just at the moment your house catches fire. On the other hand, 
one of the stumbling blocks. Do you remember one of those earlier iterations when Geoffrey Cox was asked to tell us whether there had been a unilateral exit clause? And he said, rightly, no, there isn't. If there could be a change on that is one possibility. Another possibility is to say, right, this arrangement will last for 10 years. Now, of course, that should actually appeal to the Brexiteurs who are convinced that technology will do a lot of the heavy lifting anyway. Now, I think the more sensible view on technology is it's not ready yet. But it may be in a number of years' time, five to ten years' time. And of course, ten years is a long time in politics, so it would be a way forward. It's a very long time for a Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Ten weeks is a long time. But all of these things then depend on the Europeans, right? And the Irish in particular. The Irish particularly. You don't want an exit clause in an insurance policy because it's an insurance policy. So it's not just the ERG have got to swallow it. The other side have got to swallow it. But I think that this is where there are three things. It's not just a two-part problem. It's a three-part problem. And the problem is, is the customs union, Northern Ireland. And the customs union also depends on where you want to get to in the future. So one reason why, for Boris Johnson, that this is more of a problem than it was for... Theresa May is is because she showed in what she said about when she was into her checkers approach that regulatory alignment at least in goods is something that she probably positively wanted not just was willing to contemplate Johnson doesn't Johnson probably would like to get to a point where he would accept some kind of economic border a modest one as possible but some kind of economic border between the United Kingdom and um, Ireland but the third thing then is is that principle of the UK signing up to something that it can't exit from. Some people in the ERG simply can't accept the idea and in, in this sense I don't think it is unreasonable for the reason that Catherine said that why can you leave the European Union but you can't leave the backstop that the UK could ever subordinate itself in this way. So in their terms it's a kind of honour position. Then there's the substance of Northern Ireland, then there's the substance of the customs union. And, and just on this Northern Ireland thing and then we'll come on to the wider European context I'm still not completely clear so Boris Johnson might tolerate some kind of border, and you said between Ireland and the UK, but that border he's assuming would be between Northern Ireland and the Republic rather than in a way, because the DUP have always been suspicious of him, they think that he might cut them loose. Might he end up tolerating a border between the island of Ireland and the rest of the UK? Is that when push comes to shove, where is he going to draw his line? Well, that's a million-dollar question because it ties in with the much bigger question of what future relationship the UK has had. And one of the striking things to me throughout the course of the leadership contest is there's been no discussion of this whatsoever. The words customs union, customs arrangement have not crossed anyone's lips. And this is... I can understand it's not a great seller politically. The fact is it's crucial. It's the key to what our future relationship might look like. I think the um, the difficulties that Boris Johnson has in part is that you can't cut the DUP loose for reasons of parliamentary arithmetic. If you do so, you can maybe get one vote through, but then subsequent votes. I mean, I just don't see how that is practically possible. So he's definitely constrained in that sense. There is a basic incompatibility here, I think, which is that the European Union has a, a legal order built around the need to, to manage trade in a particular way. Either you're in it or you're out of it. Since May's checkers arrangement, we've had attempts to be a bit out of it, but not entirely, and that seems to have fallen foul. It's been ratcheted up to being, Catherine, absolutely right, entirely out of it, seems to be the assumption, by the end of October. The idea that you could sort of row back to another version of being a bit out of it, but not entirely, I don't see where that's going to come from. And on the European side, the absence of an exit mechanism, I think, is a principled issue on the British side. Having a permanent backstop is the principled 
position on the European Union side. If nobody's willing to start talking about changing position on reintroducing a border on Northern Ireland, then those two principal positions cannot be reconciled. And are we still basically in that situation which we've talked about before, which is the future arrangement for the Europeans is conditional on this withdrawal agreement passing, and that Johnson, there's no way that Johnson can finesse this. I mean, they've said, so uh, Barnier has said, well, we're open to discussing the political declaration, but the withdrawal agreement is withdrawal agreement. And Johnson is still in that position where the things that he wants to discuss and open up for discussion are in the withdrawal agreement. And we're not going to square that circle, are we? I think that's correct. Well, the caveat to, I think, comes from something that Chris said, though, which is that backstop itself is a problem for the EU because it is an in-out kind of arrangement to use that kind of language. There is a way of looking at it that drives a coach and horses through the idea of there being four indivisible freedoms because it treats goods and people in fundamentally different ways. So when you say it's in-out, you mean it's an in-and-out? Yes. It's not an either-or, it's like it's the the muddly one. It is a muddle, and so... If you listen to, say, what, like what Jeffrey Cox was saying back in February, it's like, well, there's no legal way out of this. But he was saying that the changes that were made made it more politically possible that you might get out of it, in part because it does create problems for the European Union. So in one sense, the question then becomes, if you ask it, OK, how are the rest of the EU minus Ireland going to think about it? In saying, is is this thing that actually is somewhat problematic from their point of view, is that actually a tenable basis to go into the future? And I think you can make a different kind of judgment about that. How you manage the politics around that is a whole other matter. So, of course, Ireland is key here. The EU is determined not to be seen to be selling Ireland short, but Ireland is the country, apart from the UK, which will take the largest economic hit in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And I think there is now an increasing awareness amongst the Irish population about the fact that Ireland will take a really significant economic hit. And so I think there is more pressure coming from that side that, as we get closer to the 31st of October, that some concessions need to be made in order to make sure we don't have a disorderly Brexit. And would the concessions have to originate with the Irish government? So the EU won't sell them short, but if the, the Irish, Irish government, government say, look, you exactly. can sell us a bit short and we'll stomach it. Yeah. You think that's going gonna... to... And so I think that is the only way forward. Certainly that's where movement might come from. And I think there are two different views of the backstop. One is that it's a kind of annexation policy on the part of the European Union to impose its order on the territory of Northern Ireland in some clever way. I've always thought that that was the opposite. It's completely wrong. It's a concession in many ways. Quite a curious concession, mm. a surprising concession. And it goes I mean, against the, the argument that you, there should be no cherry picking because there is cherry picking. Exactly. You know, the UK has got essentially free movement of goods. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that it's the headline. That's right. And so for the EU, it's in a slightly difficult position because on the one hand, it has made a concession, though it doesn't appear to be that. But it's also committed itself to having a unified position and from the very beginning taking the Irish position as its own position. And that would be both difficult to politically step down from because any change of position would be difficult and slow to happen. And also it would be, you know, symbolically, I think, an enormous step for the European Union to take. It wouldn't, I think, have to show that it was pressuring the Irish government. The Irish government maybe would have to make some concessions itself that it's then willing to communicate to other EU member states. I'm not sure that I really see that that happening, to be honest. One more thing before we come on to other possible scenarios here. So Helen said, there's, you know, there's how you sell it politically. And whatever else Boris Johnson is, he's meant to signal a very, very different approach to political sales personship than Theresa May. And people did often complain about Theresa May that 
there was a way she could have presented the deal that she got, which was she did extract these concessions. She did get cherry picking. She did force the Europeans to go against many of their instincts. And she was totally unable to make it sound like anything other than a defeat. Is there any way that a different style, because it's almost like that ship has sailed, right? He said the, the backstop is dead. Essentially, that version of the withdrawal agreement is dead. So has he boxed himself off from the alternative thing, which is I'm Boris Johnson and I'm going to put the kind of dude, glossy <laughs> energy version on this. This is, a, this is the lipstick on this a pink. Is the li- I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> that's, that right? Um, anyway. Well, I think that there is a way. If, if something was coming, I think he said too much, including what he said in the last few months, to say you can just take things as exactly as they are and then navigate that through the, the House of Commons. But he has got one advantage, I think, over Theresa May if some kind of concession was coming. And that is the other reason why people in the Conservative Party or a certain kind of person in the Conservative Party on the ERG side was suspicious of the backstop isn't really because of the EU. It's because of Remainers in Parliament and the Treasury in particular. So that they fear that it was something that was being used by the British or Remainers in Britain to trap the UK into a customs union. So it's like, if it is the case that the backstop creates a very strong bias towards ongoing customs union and a very strong bias towards ongoing regulatory convergence on goods, then that in itself becomes defining of what then will be the UK's future relation with the the European Union. But if you suddenly don't have the same distrust about what the Treasury might be up to or what the Prime Minister might be up to or what the people close to her might be up to. Or him, in this case. <laughs> yeah. Then you can think that maybe with a, some, you know, cosmetic changes that the backstop doesn't have to be as constraining. Now, that doesn't get round the, let's use a shorthand, the matter of honour about, you know, the UK signing a treaty that it can't get, get out of, but it can take some of the political fear about what its long-term consequences might be away. But then that implies that the selling job is to construct a narrative which does take you through a general election, because after all, the fear would still be there if you do this yeah. thing and then this government's out yeah. on its ear and a, a bunch of, whether it's yeah. Corbyn or anyone else, or you know, worst of all, in the minds of these people, Joe Swinson come in, then doesn't mean anything. But if Johnson can persuade the people on his side that there's a sequence which goes this we suck it up but it gets us through a general election and then this isn't nearly so bad the other side of an election if we win it and it's still a job to sell that but it's at least conceivable it still doesn't get around the issue of the DUP because you've given diametrically opposed views as to so you think the DUP Helen has to be cut loose and Chris thinks that in the end actually it's still going to be the DUP that will decide on this because he depends on the DUP and it was the DUP that blocked it last time But then that's where the technology comes in. And if you go way back to December 2017 and the joint report, which was agreed, you remember it was agreed and then the DUP said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't want this. And then they had to come back and have another go. In the joint report, it was technology was seen as the way forward. And so if he can sell that this is a transition to technology as a way of dealing with the Northern Ireland border, then it might be a way of getting the DUP back on board. It's a lot of selling. But he's a salesman. Is he? This is the question. Is he winning? I mean, he's a campaigner, I think. 
But we're talking about something different here. We're talking about relations with parliamentary parties. We're talking about substantive questions that then are communicated in a different... I mean, this is a different ballgame from a stump speech that's very sort of compelling. Yeah, I I don't think you can... And selling is a trust game, right? And he has got a trust problem. The person who has made the best fist of selling the backstop, trying to sell it, was Michael Gove. If you go back to the, the first months of the year. And if you go back to then Boris Johnson when he resigned from the cabinet over checkers, trying to deliver a parliamentary speech that would actually have hurt Theresa May over the issues at state where checkers was concerned, he couldn't do it. Because to be able to persuade over this, it's not always the case in politics, in order to persuade you need good command of the detail and to be able to use the detail to make the argument. But with this one, it's quite difficult (laughs) to avoid sounding like you know what you're talking about. So let's do some other paths on the decision tree. That's probably not how decision trees work, but you know what I mean. So Catherine, take us through what's sometimes called the kind of standstill version of this. So something short of crashing out, the version where this withdrawal agreement doesn't pass Parliament, but there's an understanding that some provisional arrangement, some standstill arrangement can get us through the period after the 31st of October, but allows the UK to leave on the 31st of October. Does that, how does that work? Well, this is this is a, the GATT Article Twenty Four, and I can already B hear, or C. Uh, well, this is this is a question. I can already feel that some of your listeners, metaphorically, eyes are rolling, or they've already just turned off. No, but, they, they love it. <laughs> but it's Article Twenty Four, Five B and Five C. Oh, yeah, I forgot the five. No, that's right. It's very important the five. And essentially, this is what the ERG have been running the argument. They've actually been talking for a while about Article Twenty Four, Five C, which is that there could be some sort of ten year period where no tariffs are being levied. The trouble about 245C is one, it's virtually never ever used anymore and two, it requires an agreement. It's an agreement that there should be a plan, there should be schedules and that it's leading to something like a free trade agreement. So now the argument has shifted back to Article 245 be, which is about having a free trade agreement. And certainly I've heard very recently at the UK and Changing Europe conference on the Constitution, Bernard Jenkins said, oh, we, we want to do it under B. We'll have a quick and dirty free trade agreement ready to go on the 31st of October. And that will avoid having to have all the problems with C. We can just get on with it. But the trouble is, the law gets in the way. And I realise that it's inevitable that a lawyer might say that. But the fact is that even under B, there needs to be a free trade agreement and the agreement is bilateral and it means that the EU've got to agree to it and it also means that the EU will say well hang on a sec we're happy to have a free trade agreement with you but you need to have done the three big ticket items namely citizens rights the money and wait for it the backstop and so for low it's no longer a quick and dirty free trade agreement because we've got to deal with all those things otherwise the EU won't sign up to it so B and C neither of them help unless you've got an agreement. Is it still basically, and there are lots of variants on this, a chicken and egg problem, which is the thing that's meant to solve the fact that we don't have an agreement requires an agreement to work? That's exactly right. Okay. Well, that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's back to square one. It's back to square one. And that's that's why I think the chances of us leaving with no deal at all are really quite high now, because it's so difficult to get to any point. And the other legal point is that to have a quick and dirty free trade agreement, yes, some people say it can be done in a matter of a few pages, is that the EU has consistently said they will not start negotiating on a free trade agreement, i.e. in respect to the future, until after we've left. 
that means that there's going to be a gap between the 31st of October and even at the best case scenario, a matter of weeks while a free trade agreement, a quick and dirty one, is negotiated. I'm trying to wrap my head around what a dirty one looks like. Well, it's just very, <laughs> how, very fil- how filthy is it? <laughs> it's sort of very short. It's and it, But the trouble is, the moment you start thinking about it, and I, I did press Bernard Jenkins on this point, I said, you know, OK, is it just about goods? Because, of course, as you know, the economy is very highly dependent on services. I said, no, we could have some services in it too. And before you're into the world of services, the legal basis becomes more complicated and services often involves people moving. So what about the mobility provisions? And before you know it, it's no longer a quick and dirty free trade agreement. It's becoming something much more substantial. Does that suggest that in these various scenarios, the standstill one is a kind of unicorn? I think it's a totally uniform. I cannot see That's how That's good. At least we can legally. knock that one out. But not just on the British side. It requires the European Union tearing up every principle it's laid down since the... It's way beyond cherry-picking. It's a kind of like complete abandonment of yeah. what they stand for. And so, they won't do it because it's there's too many risks to them. And if you put it yourselves in their shoes, why would they? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So then we're getting down to either a salesperson job on the thing that has been rejected many times or the much blunter choice between crashing out no deal and arresting the whole process. And we've got the general election issue to come, but is that sort of what we're looking at, do you think? Yeah, I've said for some time that the outcome is going to be some sort of decision on the part of MPs about no deal and revoke. Uh, And that, I think, will itself then provoke some prior decisions that MPs have to make about whether they want to go there. Are they more interested in considering a second referendum? Does this unleash Westminster dynamics around a possible general election these are the kind of things that then begin to kick in before and so you say it's a decision for mps but it also does depend on europe you know macron's role is still very significant here he seems to have emerged as the person who could force the issue but there's also a change of leadership in the leading european institutions so ursula von der leyen is replacing juncker and christine lagarde is replacing draghi at the ecb i mean these things are happening uh, Juncker replacement comes the day after the 31st of October, I think. So it, you know, the sequencing isn't quite right, but there is a change of the guard there. So we've got our change of the guard today, tomorrow. Does it make any difference? Does this put more power in Macron's hands as the one stabilising force here? Because there's also the instability within German politics. And Well, I think that's the one that actually needs more attention than it's got so far, is the instability in German politics. Because in Saxony and in Brandenburg, they're having state elections on the 1st of September you know if these elections go really badly for the governing coalition so there's the Christian Democrats with the CSU and the, and the SPD the, the Social Democrats I mean there's got to be a real risk that actually the German government is heading towards a terminal crisis and not helped I think by the by the situation with Merkel over the summer and the the stories about her health 
And if you look at what's happened in the coalition in relation to von der Leyen's um, nomination, is despite Merkel's role in bringing that about, she wasn't actually able to, the council, to support it because it's so divisive within her coalition. So if we go back to where we were in, you know, going up to the March 31st deadline, what we saw was a lot of short-term economic weakness in Germany. We haven't got that in the same way now the structural problems haven't gone away but it's not as short term difficult a position but the politics in Germany I think is pretty different than it was in the running up to the 31st of March I think that the Franco-German axis is in or partnership alliance whatever you want to call it is in a worse state than it was in that and I think that these really do have to be borne in mind when we think about the way in which the EU 27 might be reacting at the moment or thinking through the options that it has in dealings with this situation. But does that mean last time Macron and Merkel kind of faced off against each other, Macron taking the harder line, Merkel taking the softer line? If the German position is weakened, does that strengthen the harder line? I think it does. But I think the appointments are important for other reasons as well. This was not a very successful series of appointments. The idea that you would... uh, have a commission president emerging from this Spitzenkandidaten process broke down. Parliament was very unhappy about who eventually was put forward. She got through by the skin of her teeth, really, in terms of votes in the European Parliament. As people pointed out, 52-48. I mean, the, the, yeah, magic it's, number. It's not that Juncker was sort of amazingly powerful or anything, but you just have the, the shadow of this slightly sort of... Um, unhappy process of nominations for these big jobs feeds into the fact that I think within the European Council governments will call the shots maybe even more than they they have before and then the relations between these governments are important but we have Macron emerges I think for all of what's happening at home as a stable factor he's there he's got his views he will articulate them Merkel I think is weakened there are other figures around the table who it's not quite sure what they're going to say. I mean, the Spanish government is a caretaker government which may have to go back to elections, you know, imminently because they can't form a government. So that would have been, you know, what would have Sanchez's position have been? I mean, these are things that will matter in terms of how that argument is had around the table if the European Council is put in a position where essentially they have to decide whether they want to kick the UK out or not because the UK is unable itself to... And the Italian government is also unstable. Absolutely, and may itself, you know, Salvini may pull the plug on that government. So if everyone is unstable apart from Macron and Macron wants to kick us out... So he may sort of push his line, yes. It would be be more on him, though. That's the other thing. He would be exposed in a way. It would be absolutely clear who had done this. If if he forces the issue, No, he can't hide behind anyone else. It'll be clear it was him, right? But that would suit him too, because it would position him very well as the sort of de facto leader of Europe. Though pushing what could be a very un, a decision with very weighty consequences, which he would then have to take on as his response. I think he's caught in. Yes, he wants to lead, but does he want to lead on this and take that decision? That I don't know which way he would go. To be honest, because there is that you broke it, you own it thing, Absolutely. which he might be a little wary of particularly because he speaks very good English and can read the British press very well. And, of course, we know that there is already preparation in place for attributing blame right, left and centre. And, of course, blaming the French would be a great um, fallback position. And is there any set of alliances that Johnson could make in this situation which Theresa May couldn't? Now, he, he clearly sits in the context of European politics slightly closer to what it gets still called the populists, although I don't think he fits that label exactly. But... Is it at least possible that he could create a kind of new dynamic 
set of alliances because Theresa May was not good at that either. Um, and she was, you know, her approach was very conventional and in the view of the Brexiteers, very hidebound by both Treasury and Foreign Office sort of bureaucratic approaches that you, you have to do it this way. You know, and there is that famous Johnson line where he said, well, imagine Trump doing this, it would be chaos, but who knows what would happen? Is there... I think it's more obvious alliance in terms of, I'm not saying he w- will do this, but in terms of like, what do you do that disrupts things is actually the Trump one. And the, the issue... And literally with Trump, not yeah, with Salvini yeah, or whoever, is, and, and the issue is, is Iran, which again is something that we're in a different position with in quite a number of ways than we were back in um, the spring because of the situation in the Straits of Hormuz. And it is clear, as I've said before, that you know, so far... Britain has stayed very close to France and Germany over the Iran issue and Trump is upping the pressure, up at the ante on this issue. There is a clear incentive really to defect on the Iran issue, I think, and whether Johnson takes that is going to be really interesting. How would that connect with the Brexit issue? So he sides with Trump on this in order to apply pressure to whom over what? I mean, it would just be generally disruptive. Well, it becomes something to, that there's an incentive for others to try to deter because it's a big deal, I think, if the UK breaks with Germany and France over so the EU Iran. makes a concession to stop Johnson doing that because it wants to keep Britain. Yeah, I think, I'm not saying that that will happen. I'm just saying that I think that you can't detach the geopolitical considerations from the situation in which we're in. And they're not quite the same as what they were back in the spring. Because so far, basically what the EU has said is we refuse to consider the UK exiting the European Union as a geopolitical question. The only thing we're interested in is defending the rhetorical integrity of the indivisibility of this single market. And I say rhetorical because it doesn't really correspond to reality. That is the only thing that they've been willing to engage with. That is the strategic decision they made, if you like, was not to be geopolitical about it. So then the question is, is can that judgment actually survive the next few months? Surely I can't see a scenario in which pressure over Iran leads to a concession over the backstop. That just seems like too big a stretch, no, given not, everything Chris always is telling us about how the EU operates, which is it's a process-driven I'm not saying that, that, that it necessarily will. I'm saying that you can't think that these things won't influence in some way the judgments that are being made in all the different capitals. Now, how that then manifests itself, I'm not making any predictions about. But I think the let's insulate geopolitics entirely from this decision for the EU is not actually a tenable position at the moment. I think it's not impossible that the the European Council meeting in October, the 17th, 18th of October, as a sort of moment of truth type meeting where EU member state leaders would have to decide whether they want to really push the UK out. And Macron sort of puts his case, would what's going on in this broader geopolitical context influence that meeting and those decisions? You would have thought so, yes, but there's lots of evidence that the EU operates in a slightly sort of um, blinkered way. And so simply maybe for reasons of protocol, you can't really introduce other themes when you're talking about Brexit because it's, you know, Iran is then two hours later after dessert or something. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, so I think it would be difficult to bring it in. But I think the, the difference that Johnson would make is actually probably less than we imagine simply because other people who you'd associate with him him with across Europe are so fundamentally different. If you put Johnson next to Salvini and think what do they have in common, 
you very quickly sort of get through the list of what they have in common and their differences are so fundamental and enormous at all levels, politically, but also culturally, socially, everything. So there's a kind of common thread, which is that they have this slightly populist and almost like kind of clownish element to them. But in many ways, Salvini is a more serious politician. It's very different from him socially and culturally. I just, so I can't see some new alliance emerging. He has more in common with Macron, doesn't he? I mean, if it's socially and culturally... Yes, I mean, they could spend a lot of time chatting about... Uh, I mean, yes, in some ways, yes. Uh, though Macron would sort of... Um, as, long as, as long as the Brexit word doesn't come up in conversation. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so in these various scenarios, when, when newspapers have been laying out possibilities, in most of them you get to an election sooner rather than later because the barrier is still the current configuration of the UK Parliament for almost all outcomes. Even that thing of, if it comes to a crunch of no deal or revoke... Helen and I have had this conversation before I texted her one weekend to say which one would Parliament do because I think both would give it a nervous breakdown. I mean, I just can't, it's almost impossible to imagine Parliament embracing either of those two options. Johnson said in his tub-thumping speech to the backbenchers yesterday that he was going to try and avoid an election for as long as possible. But, but, it becomes increasingly hard to see how he puts it off. I mean, the majority is so wafer-thin. And the opposition are, relatively speaking, in disarray. You know, there's another way of thinking about it, which is if, if Britain has become a country where we went from being 40-40-20 in 2017 to being now 20-20-20-20, five twenties, the prize is for, whether it's Labour or Tory, if they can pull their vote back close to where they were in 2017 while the other lot are still scrabbling over their divisions. It may be a complete illusion but there's a sense on the Tory side this may be their moment that the Lib Dem Labour split is deeper for that section of the vote than the Brexit Party Conservative split. I still think it's a dangerous strategy because I think a lot of Tories will vote Lib Dem um, and there's real fear among, I mean, Helen and I talked about this last week there's real fear among Tories in southern seats they're not going to lose them to the Brexit Party they're going to lose them to the Lib Dems if, if Johnson is an offensive chaotic Prime Minister but also the loss of the the Brexit Party too, and of course this is the, the timing issue, is crucial because if he has a general election when the dates mooted is the twenty fourth of October, he will not be able to go into that election saying we have left the EU, and so the Brexit Party will make hay. I think the only circumstances in which that isn't true is if he can essentially provoke Parliament to move on the revoke side of things, because in one sense, what has the people who don't want Brexit to happen done so far in a positive sense absolutely absolutely nothing they've just tried to stop various options, they haven't gone that extra step but if we're heading towards it's either no deal, assuming that the, there isn't any way back for the withdrawal agreement, it's either no deal or it's revoke the people who then want revoke have got to move first because that becomes then the means to stop no deal and if they move first and Boris Johnson can present them as obstructing the outcome of a of a referendum and having contempt for the majority of the electorate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just possibly, and I, I really am saying, just possibly, there's a way for him to think about holding a general election without the UK having left the European Union. Otherwise, I think Catherine's absolutely right. Because in a way, he ha- the existential fear for the Conservative Party is said to be having an election before Brexit because the Brexit Party will kill them, but. If there's any way, that's one scenario, and Johnson's able to say to the Brexit party, this election is your last chance too, 
that's the only way this could work. And you know, Farage is talking about a pact or whatever, who knows? It's how he forces the issue. Again, this requires such political skill. I mean, that's the thing. The sequencing is so it's complex. It's so difficult. So when do we think the moment of truth will arise? So the autumn is going to be interesting. And there are lots of points along the way. Who knows? Something always happens in August. A war, usually. So There's a by-election, isn't there? Yeah. There's a by-election. They're going to lose that to the Lib Dems, I think. Right? That's a big deal. Yeah. But So, so there's a by-election. But a by-election won't force Johnson to make a choice. At some point, Johnson or his government, or whoever is running his government, or maybe Gavin Williamson, will have to make a choice. But what's going to be the the crunch point? Because it could be the forced choices over an election. It could be the forced choices over no deal. I, when do you think he's going to have to put his cards on the table? I think it has to be after party season. So that's the end of September. The conference. The, yeah. the con- conference season, yeah, end of September. Takes it into October. The European Council meeting is crucial because, you know, it's difficult for them to meet outside of that. And and these are sort of, you know, these are important dates. That's mid-October, just, you know, 17th, 18th. So I think just before or just after, because um, probably just after, you could then imagine another crisis summit being organised really just before the, the end of October. So it would be a phony war until then. Yeah. Losing a by-election, for instance, I think would push things in a certain direction. There's a certain momentum that builds up. So it wouldn't just be posturing and options do get closed down. There will be some attempt, I suppose, to, to speak with Barnier and to see what you know, they're willing to do. And so as we go through the August and, uh, and September, options do close down. But yes, I think the decisive crunch point for Parliament and for the Prime Minister, for the government and for the European Union is really that second half of October. And you don't think it'll be precipitated by a vote of no confidence before then? I think that there'll be an attempt, but oh, it's, at least it's quite possible there'll be an attempt. I think it's quite difficult to see how it is lost unless there's a real prospect that no deal is going to happen. So again, it's a kind of Chicken and egg. timing issue because... Any Conservative who's going to vote against the government in a vote of confidence isn't going to be a Conservative candidate at the next general election. And then as we talked last week, there's these 15 essentially independent MPs. It's not clear what the remaining members of the Change UK will do in relation to a, a confidence vote. So I think the confidence vote is not the last resort, but it's very close to the last resort for Tory Remainers who absolutely categorically won't accept a no deal and are willing to sacrifice their political careers to it. And I think that the reason why Chris is right that the the European Council timing matters is because that can be held out as something where something can change. Johnson's calculation, I think, must be that a general election is winnable if he's been forced to hold it by a Remainer parliament. And so he says, I will go all the way to no deal assuming Parliament won't let me get there, they will force me to have an election at the last minute, which I can then win, because it's not that I wanted to have it before leaving the European Union, because I'm not going to leave, it's that I was stopped from leaving by Parliament. And that's, you know, definitely a winnable election. But to get there, you've got to really be willing to go as close as possible to no deal. And the one thing that we haven't discussed, which is a second referendum, I mean, Change UK are, or were, the second referendum party. I think the Lib Dems are getting closer to being the revoke party but the second referendum is still a live issue again in some of these scenarios laid out by the newspapers Johnson ends up being the one who says probably post a general election that he'll put his deal or even no deal to a second vote. Another possibility is you say he says right we'll have a second referendum and it buys him a year 
because it's going to take a year to get a second referendum through Parliament and then to have the referendum itself. And that will buy him a year to try and really improve things domestically, which, of course, is what the emphasis will be on, because he knows that Theresa May failed to do that. And also then really up the campaigning, which, as we've already heard, has been a good thing. Now, I think that's the least likely option, but it may be one of the ones that's factored in. As an alternative to an election. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more likely a second referendum would be an alternative to an early general election rather than a post-general election thing. I think we said this last week, if you're a Conservative MP then terrified of losing your seat, then the second referendum is a better option than a general election. Having said that, the problem is is that we're now so close to the government not having a majority that if you were then dealing with a situation in which we were all yet more delay, yet more waiting, it's very difficult to see how the government's majority survives that. Can I just say, add one further complication to all of this, that, of course, the default position is that we leave on 31st of October. If we leave on 31st of October without a deal, and we've ruled out these sort of interim transition arrangements, the reality is Article 50 gets turned off. And so an Article 50 is actually a relatively benign legal regime in comparison to the legal regime for what will come next, which will be the the basis for negotiating a future trade agreement. Now, if we leave with no deal, then we go into a sort of a situation that nobody's ever been in before. There may be pressure to negotiate very quickly for a future trade agreement of some sort, but the EU will come back and say we need also those other three things sorted out. And it becomes legally very difficult to get that through counter-argument to that is it may be slightly easier to get the whole thing through as a package because the sequencing has been a big problem throughout that the EU has insisted on the divorce before the future negotiations. But it may be so difficult to get the whole thing through that actually we're not even talking about a future trade agreement at all with the EU. And that really is quite a striking proposition, bearing in mind where we've come since 2016 when even people like Boris Johnson were talking about, well, we'll have some sort of Norway-style arrangement. I'm going to try and sum it up. Johnson is going to be confronted with these realities. He probably hasn't faced quite up to them yet, I think. People think no deal's got potentially bad economic consequences, but as you said, they're a really bad immediate legal... And and you keep apologising for talking about law, but we do do still live in a legal order. I mean, the rule of law is still just a principle. And the EU does as well, that's... So it's pretty unpalatable. Standstill is a unicorn. The withdrawal agreement and the backstop, it's possible something might be done around the edges of that. The decision is probably going to be that or a general election. Or a, a second referendum, as a, but even that one, I think it's hard to get through this parliament. It's, it's reselling the deal or a general election, maybe forced into one by, a, as you say, a Remainer parliament teetering towards the brink of revoke. I mean, it's hard to get anything through this parliament as it stands. I think if you're prime minister as well, you're very reluctant to go to an early election because you may lose. A, a second referendum has the advantage that you just are there for longer. And I think something about Johnson is that I think all this Brexit and these are means to an end to securing his place, giving that up quickly, I find that you know difficult to imagine. So you'd have to be pushed into it with some confidence about being able to win. If that's not coming, then the second referendum seems slightly likelier, but given the configuration of Parliament, is a big piece of legislation to get through an incredibly fractious Parliament. So I'm nervous that every time you get to a binary, 
because we've been here before and that, that isn't what happens. Something else happens. Something else happens. So I think there's still quite a number of things that may happen before we get to the 31st of October. So we might have to talk about this again. <laughs> Indeed. We're not going away. We're going to start putting out our summer season of guides over the next few weeks. We've got some really interesting ones coming up. We're also going to come back in the middle of August to see where we are with the story we've been talking about today. And in the autumn, we've got some really exciting plans live events we've got some big guests we're going to be doing some new things this podcast is going to carry on as politics carries on being really interesting please join us for all of that please keep listening over the summer my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics so boris johnson is now Prime Minister, I've just watched the speech that he gave outside 10 Downing Street. It's strange I associate sitting indoors on a baking hot day watching TV with watching England lose at cricket and, oh look, they've just collapsed against Ireland. It's almost too obvious, the, uh, the metaphor. Johnson said in his speech that he didn't want to go back to the arguments of 2016, the arguments of the referendum. And yet the weird thing about it was, that's exactly what it felt like. It's as though the three years, which happened to be, this is not what the story's about, but which happened to be the three years which we've been doing talking politics, were, they weren't an illusion, but they were a kind of blip. Um, and he's gone back to the politics of the referendum itself, the, the promises, the promises to the NHS, the talking up of Britain, the avoiding of most of the hard issues, the avoiding of all the things that have bogged Brexit down in the last three years, above all the potential fracturing of the United Kingdom. He had nothing to say about Scotland except that it was part of the brand. He had very little to say about the backstop except that he really wished it wasn't there and couldn't see why we needed it. There were echoes of Michael Gove in that speech and then we discover that Dominic Cummings is is back, potentially at the heart of government. And that really is taking us back to 2016. And I find myself thinking about a lunch that Helen and I had, I think it was a couple of years ago, with Dominic Cummings in a pub near his home because we wanted to persuade him to come on Talking Politics. We thought that he would make a fascinating person to talk to about history and philosophy, the history and philosophy that lay behind what he thought he was doing in the referendum campaign and where he actually thought it would leave Britain. And I think we came quite close to persuading him to come on, I don't know, because he didn't um, in the end, and I suppose now he won't, or well, not until this episode in his career is done too. So we'll have to see what his view of history and philosophy is through how it plays out. In government, it will be fascinating. But now I look at my computer, the, the cull has started, the cabinet is being cleared out the as people say the old team is being reassembled it is the 2016 team cummings and gove and and others the the true believers i suppose it's odd it's odd to have been doing this podcast for three years this it feels i mean seeing boris johnson standing outside downing street feels big but it also feels like it has trivialized the last three years and that there's some serious rewriting of history going on. But you can't rewrite history, you can't completely rewrite it. 
um, and the history will catch up with us soon. Um, and that's what we're going to discover in the autumn. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. 